Hey, you're listening to the Subclub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me today, Revenue Cat CEO Jacob Hiding. Our guest today is Curtis Herbert, an independent iOS app developer, designer, and wearer of many hats. Curtis is the founder of Slopes, the app for skiing and snowboarding, and he took it from an indie side project to a thriving business. On the podcast, we talk with Curtis about his nine-year journey to reach a million dollars in ARR, why he shares revenue numbers publicly, and how taking inspiration from web businesses instead of other apps kept him ahead of the curve. Hey, Curtis, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Long time fan, first time uh, podcasting with you. Um, so I want to jump right in and just ask, like, why did you build a snowboarding app? Uh, because I snowboard is probably the <laughs> easiest answer to that question. Uh, but while I was snowboarding, I was with some friends and we were using another app at the time that was uh, pretty well engineered, but the UX left a little bit to be desired to be polite about it. Um, and so we were trying to figure out, I think, where we went the fastest, uh, while we were skiing that day. Um, and always remember people ski responsibly. Don't go out of control fast, go at a controlled speed. Um, but anyway, we wanted to see where we went the fastest and, uh, it took cross-referencing like three or four screens or something mm. crazy. Um, so I was just, we were at Denny's and I'm like, yo, I could do better than this. Uh, which I feel like is the famous last words for a software engineer. Um, and the rest is nine years of pain and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you started with the the very typical like build a better mousetrap. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Advice I actually give uh, people to not do, but uh, maybe a combination of being early. Sometimes the mousetraps are really bad, David. And like yeah. somebody, you know, and it just takes the 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 person that is annoyed enough to fix it, right? Uh, so, I mean, it's it's classic. Like, you can't solve a problem you don't have personally, I kind of feel like. And so no. that's a great place to start. Yeah, I certainly wasn't the first on the market at that time. There were like one or two or three other apps. So yeah, it was a space that had competition already. Um, so, you know, take that as you will. It's a good indication that there's a market there, um, but then yeah. it's, you know, competition. And I had to come from behind to compete with that. Yeah. So how, how long did it take you to get to 1.0? Was this just, it was a, you were working full time at the time, right? So this was just started as a side project? Yeah, I had left Lockheed Martin in 2011. Um, and I started my own consulting company for iOS and web. Um, so at the time that I started Slopes, I think the first year I spent um, only one month full time on it. And then the rest was nights and weekends. And then the other 11 months was consulting. And then year over year, basically as it grew, I was able to use the revenue that it brought in to justify doing less consulting and just kind of balance act that uh, until there was no consulting left in 2016 when I went full-time on it. That's awesome. So it shipped in 2013? Yep. Uh, I think I, yeah, I submitted for the iOS 7 launch because that was a fun one to redesign for <laughs> when you're trying to launch yeah. an app. Um, and actually I found a last minute bug and I had to reject and resubmit. So I missed the launch day by like three days or something. But whenever yeah. iOS 7 came out, that's when slopes came out basically. It's, it's interesting to think like iOS 7 felt like so late already. You know, if you think mm -hmm. like you've been doing iOS since 08 or whatever, it's like, ah, we've been through seven iterations. Or oh yeah. Whatever. But if you think about like where the devices were in that era, like 2012, 2013, like there were apps, but like batteries were really kind of crummy. You couldn't run location all the time. Location APIs were probably a lot less efficient. Like, you know, there was, there's, and I think this is, this is generally true when you're trying to if, move into a crowded market. If the technology, if the, something has changed about the underlying technology, and in this case, maybe it wasn't so obvious. It was a bunch of different things. Like that's often a good time to disrupt, right? So we were seven iterations of iOS in, but like maybe we were ready for like a new snowboarding app, right? Uh, but it may not have been obvious. Uh, yeah, it was the, one of the catalysts for two beyond trying to figure out speed and stuff was I wanted to visualize the runs in 3ds and mm. phones had kind of caught up to the point where I could write very primitive, teach myself OpenGL, uh, kind mm. of code to render essentially before scene kit. Oh, this was well before scene kit. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, 
this was running on like an iPhone 4, uh, okay. like a little 3D graph essentially of each run. Um, now, eventually that baby kind of grew up and got rewritten. So I guess I kind of had a new baby um, <laughs> into scene kit. And then I was actually doing 3D mountains uh, where I would render your run on that mountain itself. Um, but yeah, it, fortunately, I wasn't coming out on the original edge phone or something and trying to do these fancy open 3D <laughs> or open GL 3D graphs because that uh, probably would not have done too well. I was just pushing the edge on like three GSs and fours. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so then, so you launched in 2013 and I, I even forget, did you launch as a, as a paid app or a uh, free within app purchase? No. So I actually went against the grain at the time because this was race to the bottom era. Um, and I went premium paid up front four ninety nine, a whole five bucks. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that was the launch. <laughs> Eventually, I think a year later or so, I started playing with the price and upped it to seven ninety nine. Uh, is where it ended up uh, until I went subscription and free. Um, but yeah, I never did the in-app purchase 99 cent, you know, make it up in volume kind of thing. And I'm really glad right. I didn't. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, you've been super open and we're going to talk more about this later, but you know, you've been super open about your, your numbers and share, you know, regularly about your, your revenue and all that. So I'm just curious what, how much did you make with it paid up front? Did you have a big launch? Did you get a little press? I mean, that was kind of the deal back then, right? It was like, you know, when my launch in a pro app launched, it was like two ninety nine, but we made like sixty k in a in a week. Um, so, did you have that kind of a big launch and get some press, or or did it just kind of trickle in? Oh God, no! It was um, pretty <laughs> bad because um, I mean, I was coming out of nowhere to do this. Like I, I didn't have an audience really. Um, I've been in the iOS community a little bit, but yeah, I was no underscore with 80 apps already in the market that I could build on top of that audience or anything like that. So no, the, the launch I was quite disappointed with. Um, I mean, I went at WWDC, um, some of the Apple press, not Apple, but people who reported on Apple, um, were kind enough to volunteer some of their time at one of the bars and talk to a bunch of indies and people trying to make apps to be like, Hey, how can we get your attention? You know, how should we have a press kit? Stuff like that. Uh, and I remember talking to them and then being like, Oh my God, you have an amazing app. Like, yeah, it kind of sucks. No one's written about it. Um, (laughs) and, uh, finally Peter Cohen from iMore at the time, uh, gave me my first press article uh, in the Apple Tech blog ecosystem, uh, like a year after it launched or something like that. Um, Just kind of went out on a limb. Did you have to, did you have to work that a little bit, do PR or was it just, you you do the, you knew him or, or it probably almost doesn't matter now. No, I was a total stranger. world, (laughs) but. No, yeah, it was a total stranger and it was just, uh, you know, hey, I want to help you out kind of thing. Um, this mm-hmm. is good. You should be noticed. Want to help you out? Yeah, the the Apple, the people in the Apple press space are you know very kind, generous people. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things I've learned with the ski app is not a lot of Apple people ski, so <laughs> it's very hard. For example, for Mac stories to justify covering slopes because ten percent of their audience might ski. I don't know the actual number, but you know it's not that relevant versus productivity tools or weather mm-hmm. apps or stuff right. like that. Um, and that was certainly a struggle throughout the history of slopes, um, because most of my, uh, connections, interactions, stuff like that come through Twitter and that comes through the iOS community. Um, not necessarily the ski community where it would be better to market uh, this kind of thing. I think a lot of people sleep on, on that aspect of PR needing kind of channel fit. It's like, you think, oh, if I can mm. just get in TechCrunch or, or, you know, one of these big publications, it's going to like blow things up, but it, it, exactly what you say. It's like, it, you, you need to seek out the opportunities in the communities and in the blogs and in the news sites that actually cater to your specific audience. Cause like, yeah, so many people who browse TechCrunch, you know, just don't care. And even though the volume's high, the percentage is low and it's just not worth as much as you think it is for certain apps, for certain apps it is, you know, email or a productivity app probably does a lot better. Um, so anyhow, it sounds like it was a couple of years of really struggling, but you made a little money as a, as a, uh, yeah, side was, project. I just looked it up at figures. Um, so I made $10,600 in the first two years of Slopes' existence as a paid up front app. 
Wow. Yeah, not, not terrible for, for a sidebar thing. <laughs> not terrible, but considering my consulting rate, uh, it was not paying the bills. I mean, this is yeah, this is the thing with building your own equity and IP, right? It's the, the, the outlays are significant, right? Like you have mm-hmm. to put, you're putting tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of time into it before you start. To, I mean, we'll get to the success aspect of this, but it takes a while, right? Yeah. I mean, first season, I think it was um, $1,800 I made. Uh, so this is nights and weekends, taking a month off of work, getting a launch, not getting any press. Um, you can imagine it was a little disheartening. Um, but, you know, I kept with it. And then the next season got a little bigger and then it just kind of kept going from there. Yeah. So then I did want to talk specifically, um, you switched to subscriptions in 2015, which is still actually pretty early, um, which, you know, we we talked to Mile IQ on, on one of the recent episodes and and they were even before that. Um, but 2016 was a year when Apple really kind of opened things up and like any app can do subscriptions. Yes. So I'm really curious, like what way back then inspired you to do subscriptions? And then did you have any like issues with Apple approving a subscription for a snowboarding app? Uh, no issues whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so what inspired me uh, was the web community. So like I said, I when I was consulting, was doing web. Um, I've been involved with the web since it started, um, and I've always kept a foot in that arena. Um, so watching software as a service take off on the web, you know, everything there was subscription. Um, and I, for a long time, felt like the web has figured out a lot of stuff that the iOS community <laughs> is just now figuring out. Uh, yep. They have about mm-hmm. a 10 years head start on us. So in 2015, I decided like, hey, you know, this app is... People love it. You know, the users that I had loved it, um, but uh, it's not doing what I wanted to do. I think it could be bigger. The ski market could certainly support a big app, I think. Um, so I decided to, you know, take a serious run at it, basically. Like, look, what am I going to do to run this like a business, not like a little side app? Um, and at that point, I was looking around and there were only a few other apps in the app store that were doing it that weren't dating apps and stuff like that. Like um, Strava had a subscription, I think. Runkeeper definitely had a subscription, running apps, uh, essentially Mm. slopes, Ah. but for running. And they had yearly subscriptions. Um, Now, I forget if they are through the App Store or just their web building portals. I don't remember that. Um, But I was looking at them and they were charging 50 bucks a year, stuff like that. Um, So I kind of felt like, hey, you know, why, why don't I give that a shot? You know, seeing the web and this is how you succeed recurring revenue none of this you know free make it up in volume um none of this race to the bottom and compete on price stuff like charge your value and charge it every year um and i kind of had the epiphany of hey wait people buy season passes to go skiing Mm -hmm. they're already paying a yearly subscription basically uh so why can't i just do the same thing and call it a season pass inside of slopes and at that point that was when i really cemented like I need to try this. Like the ski industry mm. is trying it. There is no reason the app for the ski industry should not also try it. Um, so yeah, when I launched it, it was yearly and monthly. Um, we I got rid of monthly pretty quickly. But yeah, there were no problems from Apple uh, with the original one. So I was non-auto-renewing back then. Like you pointed oh. out, we hadn't gotten the go-ahead yet. Um, and that was just a gambit I was taking that you know I would figure out how to self-churn. Um, right. but, uh, no problems getting it approved. It went right through. Um, yeah, I, I never got any pushback from that. Some customers were annoyed, but I made sure to take care of the existing paid customers very well. Still to this right. day, um, I'm keeping features unlocked for them, some feature parodies, stuff like that. Uh, this is six years, seven years later. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and I made sure some of them knew what was coming. Like this was not a big surprise per se. Um, and made it very clear what they would be getting uh, to be taken care of. Um, And so some of them were annoyed, um, but I think overall, most of them were pretty okay with it. Uh, And I still have people to this day write in like, hey, I bought version one. I'm still rocking the free version. You know, thanks for keeping it alive kind of thing. Um, So taking care of them, and I didn't have a huge customer base yet. Um, Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know... 30 million subscribers or something crazy like it was reasonably small so the hate email wasn't too overwhelming <laughs> yeah and if you and if you're doing it right you most of your customers are in the future right it should always kind of be yeah. true you know so you should 
uh, take care of your your existing folks but like you know don't hobble your potential future based on appeasing especially you know if you're pricing i was i'm curious like you went from uh you said 7.99 to a to yearly do you know remember what that price was you anchored on for that first yeah it was uh, 1999 um, okay and then i also had 8.99 monthly which was designed to make the yearly look better price anchoring <laughs> see the web and SaaS. <laughs> um and uh, I actually got rid of that pretty quickly because I realized a lot of people were buying it and I wasn't sure why because it was a terrible deal. Uh, and then I realized, again, mirroring the ski industry, uh, people want day passes uh, or multi-day passes because um, a lot of people go skiing for two days a year. And mm-hmm. so a season pass wouldn't make sense to them and they were buying the monthly as a way to get around that. Um, so I quickly pivoted, got rid of the monthly and added consumable passes uh, into the mix. Hmm. Did you? Did you... I mean, it seems like the monthly is a good workaround, but I guess from a user experience perspective, you just didn't want people subscribed when they they were really trying to just do a daily thing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it feels like a dark pattern in my industry. Mm-hmm. I know one other competitor that is now dead um, at towards the end tried to trick a lot of people based on some dark UX into monthly. Uh, and their app reviews were filled with people saying, why am I getting billed with this over the mm-hmm. summer? It's a ski app. You know, what's going on? Um, so I figured monthly, like it honestly just didn't make sense if I could pull off the consumable thing, which I could, mm-hmm. um, that one at the time I did get a little pushback on Apple just from the day pass because you couldn't mm. have a, um, essentially what they were considering a subscription be a day long. Uh, so back then I just had to call uh, it a single use pass, uh, which yeah, just happened to activate for 24 hours when you turned it on. Um, <laughs> But protecting consumers. Yeah, (laughs) it was a minor like one phone call from app review and we were clear and I got it fixed in 24 hours. Like it was fine. That's that's Um, good. So was was was, when did you switch? So are are you doing auto renewing now on your on your annuals or did you ever make that switch or is it? Oh, God, yeah. As soon as it came out. uh, Oh, (laughs) yeah. yeah. As soon as it came out, um, I switched to auto renewing, which was I guess that happened about two months before my initial set of subscriptions were set to renew. Um, so the timing oh, was pretty perfect. good. It happened, I think, right before the season started, if I remember correctly. Gotcha. And so then, but you did have to uh, upgrade those initial non-renewing into the renewing, right? So you did have yeah. probably higher churn that year than, than future years? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's just part of it. I mean, there was no clean way to make that transition. Right. Um, and I was already planning on, I'd have to sell them again on the yearly pass anyway, because it wasn't going to be automatic. Right. So I was prepared for this. It wasn't a surprise for me. And it was a happy surprise, actually, that, you know, I'd be transitioning them to an auto renew setup. Um, and I remember checking the first year with the auto renew that, you know, not too many people were keeping subscribed if they didn't then record the next season. Uh, and that number was very low. So I was happy that, you know, even though I had switched to auto renew, it wasn't taking advantage of customers. Yeah. Uh, they had been canceling. People tend to be pretty rational about it, especially for good apps. I think like if you're being very honest and not using dark patterns to trick people into it in the beginning, like folks, folks will unsubscribe to these things. Um, and I actually think it's really you know, if you if you're building value, people are using it and you're storing logs, right? Like it's a long term relationship with the app. I, I, I feel like this is a really great example of an, an app. I mean, you knew this and <laughs> you knew it before a lot of other people, I think. Yeah, it was something that um, I, I definitely had to be prepared for as part of the ski industry. People don't go skiing every year. Mm-hmm. You know, you might go on a great ski trip one year and then not go again for two more years, but then you'll come back um, and getting that uh getting customers to come back and remember the app is always been a struggle um something i still work on to this day but the fact that they cancel their subscription like that's fine you're not skiing i don't want your money uh there <laughs> i am giving you literally no value at this point um so please stop giving me money <laughs> so you you launched the app in 2013 you transitioned to subscriptions in 2015. You transitioned to auto-renewing subscriptions in 2016. At what point in that journey, and I imagine subscription had something to do with it, did you feel confident enough at the trajectory and, and the revenue coming in to actually get full-time? Uh, so that was 2016, um, end of it. Um, and I don't think it necessarily 
had anything to do with the fact that auto renew was happening because I couldn't mm. see what that churn mm. was going to look like until 2017. Right. Um, but the revenue that was coming in was starting to look very good. Um, I think, uh, see, I hate this because now I have to go back and look at the numbers. They're no longer <laughs> fresh in my head like they used right. to be because it's so long ago. Um, but I think that year I made like 80,000 in okay. proceeds and I had more than 2x. I was like 2.5x. Uh, the year before that, I think it was like 37,000 or something like that. Um, so like seeing that multiple and seeing the number that I was at, I was very confident to say like, hey, I'm going full time at this point. Worst case, I can backfill some contracts um, that wouldn't, you know, iOS contracting, especially back then, you know, that a lot of that was high demand. Um, yeah. Still so is. I wasn't super worried, uh, which was a nice privilege to have to say like, eh, worst case, this doesn't work yeah. out. I'm fine. But, you know, it was a bit of a gamble because I was firing a bunch of clients, essentially. Um, and once yeah. you fire them, it's hard to get them back. Um, so, you know, some risk, but it felt like a very calculated safe risk. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, most most folks are they're they're tied to a W-2, like a full time yeah. job. Right. And they're trying to make that decision. It's harder. Right. I think. You're very oh, fortunate far. that you could blend, right? Like each subsequent year, put a little more time into it and, and focus and, and kind of have a, a soft transition, which, yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the advice would be for people to architect that, but if you can make it that way, like I think that's, you did a really good job of, yeah, not not exposing yourself to unnecessary risk, right? Which is, I think, something we're always, you're always concerned about when you're launching something on your own, right? Yeah, and that the the W two transition had happened for me in 2011 when I left my full time job job uh, and went consulting. Um, so I had just done that not with an app, uh, but with consulting. But I feel like that's still very similar math and metrics. And is this smart or is this not? So yeah, it just it wasn't with slopes that I had to make that call essentially. I've given this advice privately a few times, and so I'll give it publicly on uh, on the podcast, but. With the job market, what it is, especially for a talented developer I, in mobile development, even more specifically, like there's just so much more demand. Uh, I've told a few people that, you know, who were trying to, you know, build their indie apps is negotiate. Like, I think there's a lot of opportunity these days to do a 30 hour a week job, do a 20 hour a week job. And and blend the best of both worlds. Um, so if you're out there and and trying to replicate uh, Curtis's journey and don't have the the stomach for consulting, you know, see if you can find another job at, at 30 hours a week and then have that spare spare time. I'm sitting here as an employer with many employees that have apps, and I don't know how to how to weigh in on this one. So I'll I'll, I'll just sit on the sidelines. That's a very yeah. polite. No, you're coming to work to work tomorrow, David. Um, this is not allowed. Um, yeah. So I did want to dive into the the marketing. So so again, like this 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 kind of arc that that you've gone on from this you know total side project, barely making any money. How did you start getting that that traction in attention? Um, like where did those early that early growth from 2013, 14, 15, how did you get that 2x, 2.5x year over year? Uh, honestly, part of it is I don't know. Um, I like <laughs> to think it was word of mouth. Um, I didn't have analytics in place, so I can only right. venture guesses at this point. Um, I wasn't spending anything on ads. I think my first experiment from ads was 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. I did Instagram ads for like, I don't know, 5,000 bucks or something. Like I didn't throw a lot of money at it. It was, you know, a small percentage of my yearly downloads at that point. And so a lot of it was just word of mouth, luck that the ski community does tend to talk to each other. It's a group activity. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you're out talking about your top speed at dinner, I'm going to be like, hey, how do you know how fast you went? Um, so I feel like there's in that regard, at least the core of the ski community, the people who go often, uh, not just the people going out for holidays, uh, they're going to talk, share things like that. Um, so I think that was definitely an advantage uh, that helped my word of mouth efforts. Um, now, I did try and I hope I was smart. Um, I built like <laughs> share cards inside of Slope so you could post an image of your 3D rendered day basically to social media um, with your stats on there and stuff like that because people wanted to brag. 
Um, so I tried to do some small things to encourage it. Um, no real growth hacking or anything mm -hmm. like that. And it certainly wasn't an ad dump like we see today to climb the charts right. and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Honestly, it was just a lot of slow, slow building it um, and just being patient year over year with it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's I think uh, people are always trying to figure out like this product market fit question or like, you know, whatever. But I think that's that's probably one of the best signs is when things are growing and you don't know why <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know, I don't really do much. It gets bigger every year. Right. That's that's mm -hmm. the word of mouth is a very clear signal of product market fit and people that need it. And 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 I mean, that's why I mean, we'll get further into how, how things have progressed from there. But that's kind of the first tell you see for a lot of a lot of apps or SaaS or whatever, it's like growth just kind of happens. Which is funny to think I found product market fit back then because Slopes 2.0, <laughs> the one that launched in 2015, was an absolute steaming pile of horseshit. Um, but, and I I regret shipping it in many ways. <laughs> uh, I had some great ideas in there, but the fact that there was word of mouth around this app, I still surprises well, me. Now back the then, I thought thing. it was an amazing app, but. <laughs> Yeah, the funny thing with product market fit, it's not up to you <laughs> to decide, yeah. right? It's up to the market. And yep. if the need is there and it solves the base case, it can be really bad, right? And still, if people need it, they need it, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of apps live on that. <laughs> yeah. Did at what point or, or have you even um, tracked um, ASO? And you know, have you done some optimizations? Because I, I did find that you rank really high for for real generics keywords like skiing, you know, today. So I haven't been tracking mm. your ASO, you know, the last 10 years, obviously. But um, you you rank really high for skiing, for snowboarding, for ski tracking, for snowboard tracking. H have you looked at your app store analytics and and kind of dug into like how much of your traffic is coming from search? And th that's really hard to know too, because like how many people are searching the actual name of the app versus searching right. keywords. But I'm just curious, like if if ASO played into that growth in any measurable way that you were able to see? Um, so I forget the date of it. I want to say probably around 2016. Um, there might be a blog post about this. Please see <laughs> my blog uh, and hold that to the source of truth, not necessarily what I'm remembering right now. Um, but I think it was around 2016. Um, I did start to do try and do all the right things with screenshots, ASO, all that kind of stuff. Fortunately, I know my way around Photoshop, um, so I could come up with some decent, you know, screenshots, stuff like that, experiment with different ideas in there. But that's, you know, the marketing side of things. It's a weird journey because I remember in the beginning always hearing like, oh, we're going to do all this development, but can't forget to market. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, I'm going to market. Um, and then I try and pull like a Michael Simmons or something with a Flexibits, you know, the big surprise announcement and everything. And that only works if you have an audience. Uh, and right. I didn't realize that key factor back then. Um, and then I didn't really keep up with the marketing too much. Um, and But then I started to be like, OK, I really I need to pay attention to this and started to look at ASO um, and tried my very amateur attempts at doing a good job with that. Um, I remember there was one blog post from App Figures that was talking about like combining subtitles and titles, how you can play off those combination of words. Um, and that definitely helped rank for some of those uh, more generic words like ski tracker and stuff like that. That wasn't just like keyword stuffing necessarily in mm -hmm. the title. So I tried a bunch of that. Um, so employee number one, um, Ella, uh, who came in to help with some marketing growth, all that kind of stuff. She had definitely been giving a much more serious go at ASO stuff for probably the last two years or so. And that certainly helped a lot. So that's that's kind of if I tried ASO, yes, I'm sure I was an amateur. <laughs> um, but I feel like one of the key things is I don't know how true it is nowadays, but certainly back then, if you're at least trying, you're doing mm -hmm. better than 90 percent of the people out there because most especially indie developers we vomit at the idea of marketing and ASO and screenshots and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of leave it to the last minute. Um, so if you're actually spending a couple days a month trying this stuff, um, you're probably going to have a leg up. Yeah. And you mentioned app figures, like there's uh, lots of content out there to like, for for the for the developer who's engineering focused, like trying to do growth, just copy, just find like the best example you <laughs> yeah. can find and make it work for you. That will be good enough. You don't need to invent something. You don't need to get fancy. Start with that, and then you can worry about your other problems down the road. But like having a little bit of an idea about growth and like it helps. You know, <laughs> you should do it. 
And speaking of which, I'm super impressed that the first employee you hired was for marketing and growth. Because I mean, it's just, you know, so typical of like of an indie mindset. Like I would have thought it would be designer or another developer to get push more features. But I think it was really smart that your first employee was for marketing and growth. So I'm curious kind of what your vision for that position was and then kind of how how it's gone to have you doing kind of engineering and and ev- pretty much everything else and then have somebody like full time thinking about how to grow the product so i'd like to say i was smart and had a plan for this i didn't <laughs> um so she was actually a customer who wrote into me with a health kit bug way back in the day um and then we just kind of started chatting Um, Because my email signature for customer support still to this day says like, oh, can you leave a five star rating? They're like gold to independent developers. Um, And um, she saw that, I believe, and was like, oh, wait, you're you're independent. You're you're a small shop doing this. And she snowboarded a lot. She was passionate about the space. So she was interested Um, and like marketing, ASO, all that kind of stuff was kind of her wheelhouse. So, yeah, she just kind of came in and proposed like a part time engagement thing. Um, to help me go through my day, like all the stuff I knew I should do by looking at the web and SAS, like, oh, I should be figuring out all these numbers, uh, running all these analytics, coming up with customer segments, stuff like that. Like the things I knew I should do, but just never made the time for. Um, she came in and she's like, hey, I can do that stuff. Um, I've done this before. Uh, can I get access to an anonymized version of your database and I'll figure this stuff out for you? Um, so hired her part-time um, to do that over one summer and it went really well, got a lot of great insights um, and then just kind of built on that from there. Um, and until, I, what was it, May, almost a year, uh, last May, um, that it was full-time at that point. So it just kind of organically grew. Um, but I did know hiring a developer or a designer as tempting as it is, was the stupidest decision I could make. Um hmm. One of the things I've been lucky with is I can design, I can develop, I can do half decent UX. Um, I can pretend I know marketing. Um, I can do, I can balance my books and run zero and gusto and do all the HR stuff. Like being able to do all this stuff has really enabled me to go far with slopes versus a lot of entrepreneurs that have to hire a developer. And for that, they need to seek funding. So the fact I could do it myself, um, I think was definitely a bit of a superpower. And so I knew as much as, yeah, it'd be nice if I could have someone else dealing with this stuff, shipping more features wasn't going to be the answer to Mm -hmm. me getting a better product. Um, That's always the itch and kind of my (laughs) first go-to. But in reality, I've shipped features that are like, oh yeah, this is going to be big. This is going to help word of mouth. This is going to whatever, whatever my grand plan is. Uh, And it never goes that way. Um, It's always a combination of a bunch of other things. So I kind of knew that a developer while tempting, um, would be a huge waste of money at that stage in the process. Yeah, no, that's, that's really insightful. And, and I mean, it's great to hear it happen by, by happy accident, but I think it's super cool. Are there any, um, specific things that you can think of since she joined, uh, I guess that would be like 18 months ago, part-time, and then almost a year ago, full-time, any specific kind of focus areas she's been working on that you feel like have been huge unlocks that you would kind of suggest to other indies either find somebody part-time or try and get better at themselves? Yeah. So um, analytics is definitely one. Um, so she uses a software platform called Tableau, um, which you can build a bunch of workflows and it'll spit out everything that you want to be able to build with this. Um, and so she's able to segment customers. She's able to figure out you know, how many active users we had this week, this year versus last year, what that churn was this time last year versus this year. Um, All of those kind of numbers that you could possibly want to figure out if you have your own data, uh, an advantage of, you know, not running this all client side, I built my own server backend. So I had all the transaction data, I had all the recording data, I had all of that. Um, So having those analytics has certainly helped we can see how you know new features roll out and how that might have an effect on different customer segments stuff like that um it certainly helped to see like hey you know this is we launched this feature and it's not getting the response that we thought it would um you know is there something there we need to look at 
And then she was doing other analytics on top of that, like sending out NPS surveys and stuff like that. Right. Um, and that's been really good to see, like, you know, if there was a problem with Apple Watch or something, and then I'm actually able to fix it. Like we can see the NPS score go very far up. And that's good to see, like, oh, we're healthy. Like, this is good. We're mm -hmm. not shipping a product that everyone's upset with. Um, and then also, again, web SaaS and things they did 10 years ago, uh, customer lifecycle uh, email marketing. Um, mm. So I had done, I think, a very, very primitive one or two emails. Um, but then we brought in actually the gentleman who runs ForeFlight, the pilot app. Um, we had chatted a bunch over the years and he recommended a platform called Vero. And they do just you can build workflows to send out emails. Um, so my server can send custom events to them and that can trigger mm. uh, whatever we want it to trigger. Um, and then we can say 30 days later, if they haven't done this event, do this stuff like that. Um, so we have a whole like life cycle thing every season that goes out. Um, and that's been pretty good too. We always see good conversions on that kind of stuff. We see good feedback mm. about, you know, we're giving them pro tips or something like that. Um, they're definitely feeling welcomed by the app, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Um, is seeing, you know, I, we try and make it have a personal touch. So me reaching out. Um, and saying like, Hey, welcome to slope stuff like that. Um, and that definitely gets, you know, customers like that kind of stuff. Um, and they feel like they're not just, it's some weird faceless corporation. Um, so email marketing. That's a, that's a thing I think indie devs or I don't know, I'll, I'll just say devs in general like, are, are shy about cause they hate emails right. and they're like, don't email me. This is all spam. I know it's fake. I know it's automated, whatever. Something I learned this process is you're not like everybody, right? Yes. Like, people, people like it. Put a big old unsubscribe button on there. Never email them again. They're not going to make them super mad, right? And, and be respectful and all that stuff. But a lot of people get value out of this stuff and it can drive a lot. I mean, were, were y'all like, did you have, it sounds like you did some that were like content and engagement and then others that were like specifically meant to drive upgrades? Yeah. So it depends on where you are throughout the process, how many days you've recorded, all that kind of stuff. We have a bunch of different workflows. Um, so kind of depending on where you go in there, Vero lets you set what your conversion rate is, or sorry, what your conversion, uh, event is. Mm -hmm. So like this email, we want to see people purchase something. This p email, we want to see people record again. Um, so like one of the emails early on is like smart reminders and making sure that people enable them if they haven't already. So that next time they go to a ski resort, it reminds them to use slopes. Uh, again, getting, building that habit, stuff like that is a challenge for slopes. So we're able to set all those different conversion metrics and then watch and, you know, see if they work or not. But and yeah, some of yeah. it, it, it that was kind of a leg up over the email marketing I had tried, which was basically a newsletter, um, you know, mm -hmm. a couple times a season. Um, so when I launched it in 2015, the 2.0, actually during the onboarding, I prompted for emails um, to say, hey, do you want to join the newsletter? Um, and that got me a ton of subscribers. Like a lot of people were willing to mm -hmm. your point of like, you know, we developers were like, no, you're not getting my email. What the hell are you asking <laughs> that for? Um, a lot of people were like, yeah, I want to know. Um, so that kind of built the original email list. And then from there, we were able to get new customers if they wanted to opt in and stuff like that. I, I had to ask because I know you, you roll a lot of stuff yourself. Like you've good backend developer. You've done a lot. Your subscription infrastructure is I'm going to say I've, good backend developer, but we'll say backend developer. <laughs> well, let's say uh, capable. It's capable. You certainly yeah, achieve things. Uh, was this like the first like external like tooling you brought in? Like, uh, did you kind of try to keep it all in your, in your stuff? Like what was this the first like marketing Ooh, platform question. or something like you, you used? Yes. Yeah, it was the first major one. And it was a bit of work coming up with all the different events that we wanted to trigger. Um, like, did they just record their first uh, activity of the season or is there their 10th activity of the season? Like different events for all those different things, not just like, hey, they created an account. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so it was a bit of integration, getting all those events hooked up and sent over to VRO. But yeah, this is the first real big external tool that we had any kind of integration with. Yeah, because you don't use like Amplitude or Mixpanel or any of the analytics or any of that kind of stuff, right? You, you've done most of that in-house. Uh, so some of the analytics um, is done through Firebase, um, at no. least in-app stuff. Um, all of the other stuff, analytics-wise, we do just through database events. Um, and then through Tableau, we're able to do reporting on that. Um, haven't hooked in Mixpad or anything like that. I've, I found a lot of web SaaS stuff isn't priced for mobile, like at slope yeah. scale, I'd be paying way yeah, too much money true. for this. 
um, they're thinking like web SaaS, where you're like happy to have, I don't want to, I, this is going to sound insulting, but they're, they're happy to have a thousand users. Yeah. Um, like that's, that's their scale of, because they're charging much more for a product. They're building professional B2B products. They're not building consumer products. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, but at the consumer mobile scale, yeah, no, I cannot afford that stuff. <laughs> I remember this I, going for as a beat to somebody working in B2C to B2B. Like I remember buying segment. Uh, and, and mixed panel back then and being just like mind blown, like how much it was mm. going to cost us to to do this. And then, yeah, on the on with Revenue Cat now, I think we finally just moved off of the segment based plan, like, you know, full four years <laughs> in because like the numbers, it's just orders of magnitude less. It's a big opportunity still, I think. And, in, in, you know, if, for for there, there, there's, there needs to be more tooling oriented for this kind of scale. It's just a different problem. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I tried to, to buy Mixpanel for uh, my Mirror app <laughs> and they <laughs> charge per user and I had tons of user and my, and my lifetime value uh, was something like 45 cents or something. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. You can't afford that. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it was just monetized via ads and at one time like $3 unlocked to remove ads. <laughs> and so yeah. I burned like, you know, $3,000 trying to be a big boy and integrate the big boy tools, but it's just, it was not priced for, for, for that kind of an app. But Curtis, it doesn't sound like that caused you that much heartburn. Like it sounds like you were kind of yeah. able to bring the tools in when you needed them and it didn't, you didn't have to come out of the gate with some crazy MarTech stack and like have everything instrumented and everything. It seems like. No, I've been, I'm a big proponent of, I guess being a little bit conservative in how much I take on, um, how much I'm screwing over my future self by whatever debt <laughs> I'm taking on now, mm. both technical and monetary, just playing it slow and being okay, growing organically and slowly. Um, like actually this year was the first year, uh, I moved slopes off of a $15 a month digital ocean server. Um, <laughs> that is what is powered slopes until the find my friends feature came out. Um, wow. and now we are powered by two servers, um, that have four <laughs> cores each. Um, and even those though, they're like $30 a month. Um, but like I, you know, you can get away with a lot. Um, surprisingly, uh, especially I think one advantage is since I know web and I know iOS, um, I'm able to design my API and everything to be reasonably lightweight, Plainly. offline yeah. first, all kinds of stuff. So I'm not hammering my server, uh, like I might with some SDK that just syncs everything willy nilly and does everything. Yeah. uses uh, uses venture capital to subsidize AWS bills, not talking about anybody <laughs> in the room. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think zero is actually still my biggest uh, cost. I think I just got the bill and it's $2,300 this month. Um, so okay. not terrible at my scale, um, but certainly my biggest line item uh, that's not a human. Um, it's it's a chunk of change, uh, but it's worth it, definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the thing. You start to move into these tools and the, the, the especially coming from India, yeah, you're talking $30 a month uh, <laughs> servers and then suddenly your first like $1,000 a month thing can really blow your mind. but. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to drive a tremendous amount of conversions off of the tooling there to pay for it, right? And then, uh, and then add to that the the value of the information you get, learning and experimenting and giving your other employees leverage as well. I think is one thing with tooling that's sometimes overlooked is like it's easy when you're the solo dev and you can like go and edit the code and things like this, but when you need to make tools so that your internal folks can work on that, that that can that can be um, a good moment to like upgrade and whatever. Yeah. And uh, speaking of um, going a long way with with little tooling and and being frugal, um, you just announced on Twitter or announced you just said on Twitter that <laughs> you announced crossed, is a big uh, breaking news announcement. <laughs> breaking <laughs> news, Sub club podcast, breaking news alert. <laughs> and we'll, I'll, I will have said this in the intro for the podcast, but congrats on hitting a million dollars in ARR. That is yeah, thank a you. huge achievement for for an indie app. Um, and, and one of the things I do really appreciate and kind of wanted to bring up is I appreciate that you shared that as an indie developer and how much you've built in public. Your, your blog posts have been a, a great resource for the community. And you, you've, over the years, shared revenue numbers, marketing numbers. Like you, you've shared a lot of stats that I think have helped a lot of people. 
Um, so one, I just wanted to say, I appreciate that. Um, and then on Twitter too, I mean, if, if you're indie aspiring indie developer, or even, you know, well, I think Curtis, you're, you're a little beyond the indie developer at a million dollars in ARR. <laughs> hey, you lose your indie hey, nobody can tell me when to wear pants. I'm still an indie. Like, that's the rule for but, uh, if you're an indie or not. That's fair. That's fair. But, but a, a great follow on Twitter is what I was going to get at. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, why you've chosen to do that and then maybe kind of some of the the benefits you've seen or or uh or even maybe challenges or anything you regret sharing um and and then you know what benefits have you seen in being so open like that i don't think i regret anything yet we'll see i mean you never know there might be something waiting for me building over on the side and two years from now it's going to come over and snipe me um but so far i don't regret anything um, I started doing it because I was just very annoyed with Bezos charts, uh, where you stop getting a Y axis all of a sudden. Mm, and right. I forget who it was. Uh, it was one popular Mac software shop, um, that was saying like, oh, why it's so important to, you know, do paid upgrades and all this kind of stuff. And they had, they show the massive spike of the paid upgrade and then the long tail. And it's like, well, we don't know that long tail. Like that long tail could be a thousand dollars a day. It could be ten dollars a day. It could be ten thousand dollars a day. We have no freaking clue. Um, and I felt like uh, definitely one of the problems I had going into this business uh, is it wasn't clear what to expect. Like mm -hmm. with all these charts out there that have no axes on the y-axis, like I I don't know. Like it's I just couldn't make any sense of it. So I really wanted to put something out there. That not that my journey represents everybody else's journey and what they can expect or anything like that, but at least to say like, hey, this is what my journey has been. And, you know, maybe level set some expectations. You know, maybe your journey is going to be different. It's going to be VC funded. So my charts are nothing like what your charts are going to look like. Um, but I just hated that void of information mm -hmm. and that secrecy in a way of like, Oh, I found this great marketing tool. There are this great marketing hack or something like that. I don't want to share it with anyone. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like that stuff we should learn from each other as best as we mm -hmm. can. Um, the industry is better off if we're all learning this stuff. Uh, one person keeping it a secret doesn't help. And not that anything that I have is particularly secret worthy. Uh, but, you know, whatever. I guess the only thing I really worry about is. You know, it, it gets hard as we talk like a million ARR and stuff like that. Like, I see why people get rid of the Y axis because at yeah, some point yeah. you're like, am I sounding like I'm bragging by yeah, putting this chart right. out there? Because that's not really my goal. But like, there's no way to talk about a million dollars yearly without it sounding like a humble brag or something. Uh, yeah. And so I see why some people might drop those axes. But I don't know. And, and people make assumptions too. That that's a tricky part of it is that like, you know, they don't know your expenses. They don't know, you know, how right. much you're paying on employees. They don't know how much you're spending on marketing. And so there, there, there are a lot of assumptions to be made in those public numbers. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, those, those kind of things that just are what they are. Like people are going to read what they want to read and make the assumptions they want to make. Uh, but I, I deeply appreciate you sharing so much in public. And I hope that inspires more people to share. Cause I think it, it is incredibly helpful for folks trying to, to grow. And I mean, this is what we're trying to do with the podcast too, is just yeah. talk to people about their experiences um, because there's so much to learn from each other. I mean, it's eight years, right? It's not like uh, <laughs> one, you got to 1 million and was, I don't know if it's, eight or seven years now but like uh it, you know i don't think that's that that's not like uh that's something you should feel very proud of sharing and i don't think you should have any like keep going yeah. just keep going you oh, I'm gonna, oh yeah don't permission. worry i'll keep going i really <laughs> okay. want to build out um i liked there was a web SaaS that i was using when i was a contractor uh cushion i think it's called if i remember correctly there was a freelancer tool for helping you schedule, budget, send invoices, do all kinds of stuff. Like basically the business dashboard I wished I had as a freelancer. Um, and he had a public page that listed all of his operating costs, everything from domain names to fonts to employees. And I really been meaning to put something out like that because right now I think, I don't know, ballpark yearly operating costs, not including my salary, I think is like $300,000 or something like that, 400,000, yeah. maybe 300, I think. So like, I think it's good for that context of like, okay, if I'm looking at probably 1.2 million this season, maybe, um, and minus Apple's cut, and then what are the expenses and all that kind of stuff? 
Um, now yeah. a lot of that I keep back in the business and find things to spend it on. Like this season, I was spending like eight thousand dollars a month to hire people part time um, to map resorts, uh, to go in and wow. satellite maps and draw the trails, basically. Uh, and that was like fifteen hours per resort. Uh, it was a lot of work, and that's building for a big ambitious two year plan I have. Um, but like having that cash reserve lets me go ahead and do some of these ambitious projects now that I have wanted to do since 2013 when I started this, but I knew there was no way I could do it by myself. But yeah, I, I think that that uh, operating costs is kind of part of the picture that needs to be out there too. Yeah. I would love to, for you to write that post so I can link to it and <laughs> quote it and everything else. Yeah. Uh, but again, because people just make a lot of assumptions. I mean, even yeah. like me hearing the million dollar number, I wasn't sure if that included Apple's cut or didn't include mm. Apple's cut. And then, you know, I wouldn't oh, have you, guessed. Oh, you never you include know, Apple's cut when you're trying to juice your numbers. You <laughs> always, always keep 30% on that. Well, I, so actually on that, like I've been starting to say, you know, before Apple's cut, just because if we were a web SaaS, yeah. It doesn't matter what your Stripe processing fee is. It doesn't matter right. what any of your processing fees are. When you report your revenue, it's your revenue. If you want to talk profits, it's your profit. If I'm going to say revenue, that is the definition of revenue. Right. Now, just right. because yep. I'm an independent developer who makes a living on Apple, yes, in my mind, you know, the 15% cut, the number after that it is what matters. 30. But well, still a small business. Thank you very much. Um, not a million dollars in proceeds yet, a million dollars in revenue. Um, but you know, that's the number that matters to me in my bank account. Yeah. You, you get uh, that, you get that celebratory kick in the butt from Apple when you hit that level. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, we have an internal, like how screwed are we calculation? Um, cause it's going to be plus or minus $50,000 so by the end of the year that we're going to come in the small business or not. Um, right. so it's, it's going to be cutting it close this year, I think. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Curtis. I, I think it's a great place to wrap up and you've been so generous with your time. Um, you know, people should go check out Slopes. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes, but anything else you want to, to share or pitch? Are you, are you hiring or anything? <laughs> I will be hiring somebody else in a couple months probably, but she's the lady who's been doing customer support for me for a couple of years <laughs> part-time. Uh, and awesome. she's been managing that mapping project. Uh, so I am hiring, but not publicly. Uh, <laughs> I already have someone for that role, sorry. No, I, I don't think there's anything really to pitch uh, besides, you know, check out the Slopes Diaries on the blog. That's where I put all my numbers. Um, Twitter, usually I'll tweet out numbers well before I write a coherent article about them. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I tend to tweet my designs in public and everything like that, too. Um, so check that out. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank I really you, appreciate the time. Sure thing. Yeah, thanks for having me. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.